Welcome to Shipwreck Sunday, where we investigate disasters at sea and the impact that they have on the world today. My name is Eleanor. Today, we will be discussing the Battle of the Denmark Strait in World War II and the intense, heated battle between the German battleship Bismarck and the British battlecruiser HMS Hood, as well as the demise of both. If you'd like to hear about this major naval battle, stay tuned. Quick disclaimer for our younger audience before we dive in. This story does include details of a maritime disaster resulting in the loss of a vessel, Nazi ideology, suicide, wartime violence, and death that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised for those under the age of 13. Please keep in mind that I'm not a mariner or expert in the field of maritime history, but I've done my research. Okay, everyone, let's get into it. Also, welcome back, Derek. Thank you. Shout out to our listener Leopard1 on YouTube for coming up with this idea to do a double feature of these two battleships. In today's episode, I will be voicing the Bismarck's perspective and her history. And I'll be talking from HMS Hood's perspective. We're going to do a quick breakdown of each ship's build as well as a brief mention of their histories before we get into the meat and potatoes of everything, the Battle of the Denmark Strait. First, we are going to start with HMS Hood. HMS Hood was part of the Admiral class built at the end of World War I for the Royal Navy, and she was built as a direct response to Germany's Mackensen class battleships, which were reported to be more armored and heavily armed than the latest British battleships of the renowned and courageous classes. So to compensate, HMS Hood, the only ship in the Admiral Admiralty class to be completed due to the cost of the ship and the required labor and material. She was significantly larger than her predecessors, costing £6,025,000. After she was ordered on April 7, 1916, she was laid in yard number 460 of the John Brown and Company shipyard later that year on September 1, 1916, being launched on August 22, 1918, and commissioned on May 15, 1920. She was named after Admiral Samuel Hood. In Imperial measurements, HMS Hood was 860 feet and 7 inches long, had a beam of 104 feet and 2 inches wide, and a draft of 32 feet deep. In metric measurements, that's a length of 262.3 meters long, a beam of 31.8 meters wide, and a draft of 9.8 meters deep. For her displacement in imperial measurements, she displaced 46,680 long tons and in metric measurements, she displaced 47,430 tons. As for propulsion, she was equipped with 24 Yarrow boilers capable of producing 144,000 horsepower or 107,000 kilowatts. And these boilers powered four geared steam turbines that turned four propeller shafts. She was capable of reaching an average speed of 32 knots, which is 59 kilometers per hour and 37 miles per hour. Her complement in 1919 as a squadron flagship was 1,433 men. In 1934, she had 81 officers and 1,244 ratings aboard for a total of 1,325 men. HMS Hood was a well-armed battle cruiser, and for her armament in 1941, which is the time period when the Battle of the Denmark Strait took place, she was equipped with eight 15-inch or 381mm guns in four twin mounts placed throughout the ship, being nicknamed A, B, X, and Y, from bow to stern. 
She also had 14 4-inch or 101mm anti-aircraft guns set in seven twin mounts throughout the ship to protect themselves from Luftwaffe aircraft. She also had three octopal mountings for 1.6-inch or 40mm QF 2-pounder MK8 guns next to the funnels. She also was equipped with four quad mounts of Vickers half-inch or 12.7mm machine guns and five 20-barrel unrotated projectile mounts that launched 7-inch or 177.8mm rockets. Unrotated projectiles were British anti-aircraft and ground bombardment rockets used during World War II. She also had six 21-inch or 533mm torpedo tubes to launch torpedoes, three on each side, and they carried around 28 torpedoes total. As for fire control, she had two fire control directors. For everyone unaware, a fire control director is part of a fire control system which typically in modern times has a gun data computer, a director, and a radar to assist a ranged weapon system to target, track, and hit a target. HMS Hood's directors were located one above the conning tower and one in the spotting top above the tripod foremast. Each were protected by thick armor and equipped with rangefinders one that was 30 feet and one that was 15 feet. The secondary armament was controlled by the directors mounted on each side of the bridge, being supplemented by two additional control units in the foretop and being equipped with 9-foot rangefinders. She had rangefinders all over the ship to control her anti-aircraft guns and other guns in her arsenal. During her final refit in 1941, Hood had a Type 279 early warning radar for aircraft and surface vessels as well as a Type 284 gunnery radar installed. There are some accounts stating that the Type 279 radar was inoperable, but that's debatable, especially given Admiralty documents stating it was perfectly operational. Now we get into her armor. As a battle cruiser, she not only needed a great offense, but a great defense as well. Her armor scheme was based on the armor seen on the battlecruiser HMS Tiger, built in the 1910s for the Royal Navy. This means she had an 8-inch or 203mm waterline belt, though Hood's was different from Tiger's because it was angled 12 degrees from the waterline to increase its relative thickness against flat trajectory shells. Though this seems genius, there was a major drawback. Because of the angling, it exposed more of the vulnerable deck armor and made her more susceptible to high trajectory shells. After the British faced the Battle of Jutland in World War I, 5,000 long tons or 5,100 metric tons of armor were added to the ship in the later part of 1916, and this deepened her draft and made her a bit slower. To save time during construction, they did this by merely thickening the steel already being added to the ship's armor. Her armor in total made up 33% of her displacement, which is a high proportion by British standards. However, to the Germans, this was less than usual. For example, the SMS Hindenburg's armor made up of 36% of that ship's displacement. Speaking of the Germans, Eleanor, what is the Bismarck up to? I'm so glad you asked. The Bismarck was built 20 years after HMS Hood, and she was the first of two Bismarck-class battleships built for Nazi Germany's Kriegsmarine. She was named after German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, and the two ships in that class were the Bismarck and her younger sister, the Tirpitz. She was laid down on July 1, 1936 in the Blom and Voss shipyard in Hamburg, Germany, being launched on February 14, 1939, and commissioned on August 24, 1940. 
As for her specs, her standard displacement was 41,000 long tons or 41,700 metric tons, and her fully loaded displacement was 49,500 long tons or 50,300 metric tons. Her displacement made her the largest ship in the German fleet, and the second largest battleship in Europe, second only to HMS Vanguard. She was 823 feet and 6 inches long, or 251 meters. Her beam was 118 feet and 1 inch wide, or 36 meters. Her draft was 30 feet and 6 inches deep, or 9.3 meters. As for propulsion, she was equipped with 12 Wagner oil-fired superheated boilers capable of producing 148,116 horsepower or 110,450 kilowatts. She had three geared steam turbines which powered three screws. She could reach a maximum speed of 30.1 knots, which is equals out to 55.58 kilometers per hour and 34.53 miles per hour. As for her range, she could hit a target 8,870 nautical miles away, which is 16,430 kilometers or 10,210 miles, while traveling at a speed of 19 knots. As for her complement, she averaged 103 officers and 1,962 enlisted men. Now we are going to get into the impressive equipment, armaments, and armor of the Bismarck that made her such a formidable enemy to the British. She was equipped with FUMO 23 SeaTact search radar sets, mounted on the stern and forward rangefinders as well as the foretop. She also was equipped with a hydrophone, which is a microphone designed for listening to for underwater sounds, and these two pieces of equipment made it difficult to sneak up on her. As for her guns, she had quite a few of them. For her armament, she had eight 38-centimeter or 15-inch SKC-34 naval guns in four twin mounts, each with four guns. These guns were nicknamed Anton and Bruno at the bow and Caesar and Dora at the stern. She had another twin mount system consisting of 12 total 15-centimeter or 5.9-inch SKC-28 medium-caliber naval guns in two mounts of six guns. She also had 16 10.5-centimeter or 4.1-inch SKC-33 or FLAC-38 anti-aircraft guns, and these were in twin mounts of eight guns each. She also had 16 3.7-centimeter or 1.5-inch SKC-30 anti-aircraft guns in twin mounts of eight each, and these guns were the Kriegsmarine's primary 3.7-centimeter anti-aircraft gun during World War II, so it's not uncommon to see. As for her final gun we're going to cover, she had 12 2-centimeter or 0.79-inch FLAC-30 anti-aircraft guns spread throughout the ship. She also had one double-ended thwartship catapult-to-launch aircraft, carrying four reconnaissance Arado AR-196 float planes at a time. She was armed to the teeth, but she also needed a mouth guard, so to speak. Armor. She had belt armor that was 32 centimeters thick, or 12.6 inches, as well as 36 centimeter thick armor on her turrets, or 14.2 inches, and her main deck had 10 to 12 centimeter thick armor, or 3.9 to 4.7 inches in imperial measurements. Okay, we've covered the specs of both battleships. Now we are going to line them up for their heated battle. We're going to do very, very brief recounts of what they were doing leading up to the Battle of the Denmark Strait. So if you'd like a video more in-depth of that part of their careers, let us know. HMS Hood, she'd have pre-war service after World War I, mostly escorting different convoys and traveling to and from the Mediterranean before and after the Spanish Civil War. 
She was overhauled in January 1939 all the way up until August 12, 1939 when her overhaul would be completed and the following month World War II would begin. Captain Irvine Glennie assumed command of HMS Hood in May of 1939 while the ship was still being overhauled, and she was assigned to the Home Fleet's Battlecruiser Squadron. After World War II started, she primarily patrolled Iceland and the Faroe Islands to protect convoys in that area and intercept German merchant raiders and blockade runners that were trying to break out into the open Atlantic. Merchant raiders are armed commerce raiding ships that disguise themselves as non-combatant merchant vessels. Think if the British sneakily used RMS Olympic to raid other ships during World War I. Blockade runners are merchant vessels used for evading a naval blockade of a port or strait, and usually they are light and fast, using stealth and speed rather than confronting the blockading ships. Later, on September 25, 1939, 24 days after World War II started, the home fleet and HMS Hood sortied into the Central North Sea in order to aid the damaged submarine HMS Spearfish in her return home. She'd also participate in Operation Catapult, which unfortunately we will not be covering in this episode, but we can cover it later down the road. HMS Hood would return to home waters on August 10, 1940, and she'd be refitted later into January of 1941. HMS Hood started to undergo a refit that lasted up into March. Even after the refit, HMS Hood still wasn't in great condition. All of the previous battles she'd been through had taken a major toll on her. During the refit, Captain Ralph Kerr would assume command of HMS Hood and she was ordered to the sea to try to intercept two German battleships, but she was unsuccessful. After this and patrolling the Bay of the Biscay for a brief time, finally the stars would align to our two ships. She was ordered to the Norwegian Sea on April 19th, hunting the Bismarck after a false report that the ship had sailed from Germany. After this, HMS Hood patrolled the North Atlantic and headed into Scapa Flow on May 6th. If you'd like a video on the ship sunk in Scapa Flow, let us know. Back to the Bismarck. We're going to briefly sum up Operation Rhinobung before we get into the meat and potatoes of this episode. On May 5, 1941, Adolf Hitler and Wilhelm Keitel arrived to view the two sisters, Bismarck and Tirpitz, in Gotenhafen surrounded by their large entourage. After this, Bismarck and another ship, Prinz Eugen, were to proceed with Operation Rhinobung. On May 19, 1941, at 2am, the Bismarck departed Gotenhafen and headed for the Danish Straits, and she was joined by Prince Eugen at 11.25am. They would encounter multiple Swedish vessels, essentially blowing their cover, with an Atlantic raid on its way. After aerial reconnaissance, the Germans confirmed that one aircraft carrier, four cruisers, and three battleships were anchored at the British naval base at Scapa Flow, and this led the Germans to believe that maybe, just maybe, their cover had yet to be blown. Maybe they'd been wrong. On the evening of May 20th, Bismarck and her flotilla reached the Norwegian coast, with minesweepers being dispatched as well as two raiders and their destroyer escorts moving north. The next morning, the Prince Eugen intercepted a signal ordering British reconnaissance aircraft to search northbound off the Norwegian coast for two battleships and three destroyers. Four aircraft would swoop in and then disappear before the Germans could do anything about it, and the Germans pushed forward to Grimstad Ford. Though a pair of BF-109 fighters circled above the battleships to protect them from the air, a sneaky British flying officer, Mr. Michael Suckling, was able to fly above all of this at a height of 8,000 meters, or 26,000 feet, and get aerial shots of the Bismarck and her escorts, handing these pictures over to the British. 
After this, the British deployed six destroyers, HMS Prince of Wales and HMS Hood, to reinforce the ships patrolling the Denmark Strait. The rest of the home fleet in Scapa Flow was on high alert, but stayed put. Bismarck would not refuel, and she, Prince Eugen, and three escorting destroyers departed Bergen on May 21st at 7.31 p.m. The ships made it to the open Arctic Ocean around midnight, and by 4.14 a.m. on May 22nd, the three destroyers left the Bismarck and Prince Eugen behind, heading to Trondheim. Bismarck and Prince Eugen were ordered to turn toward the Denmark Strait, increasing their speed to 27 knots and planning to dash right into the Denmark Strait. They had to reduce speed to 24 knots because of ice and zigzag to avoid ice flows near Iceland. They came upon the cruiser HMS Suffolk using their hydrophones, but couldn't lock onto their target. Suffolk escaped, meeting up with HMS Norfolk and attempted to follow the Dremrin raiders, but Norfolk got too close. There was a brief skirmish, and Norfolk was damaged but managed to escape. Prince Eugen was ordered to take station just ahead of where the skirmish had been, using her radar to scout for information since Bismarck's radar had been disabled by the fight with Suffolk and Norfolk. Bismarck was ordered to carry on, making a 180-degree turn to surprise the two cruisers, though she was quickly picked up by their radar. Bismarck had been hiding behind cloudy, misty weather, but this weather cleared up on May 24th, revealing the two German battleships in all their glory. At 5.07 a.m., Prince Eugen's hydrophone picked up a pair of unidentified vessels approaching the Germans. And here we are, the Battle of the Denmark Strait. Back to the British. HMS Hood and HMS Prince of Wales caught a glimpse of the German ships at 5.37 a.m., shortly after dawn. As we know, the Germans already knew the British were coming due to tracking them on their hydrophones. The British opened fire at 5.52 a.m. with Hood attacking Prince Eugen, the lead ship in the German formation, though they thought it was the infamous Bismarck, which had sank many British ships. The Germans returned fire promptly at 5.55 with both ships concentrating fire on HMS Hood. Hood was hit with the first shell, one launched from Prince Eugen, right on her boat deck between her funnels, starting an inferno among the ready-use ammo for the anti-aircraft guns and rockets for the UP mounts. This fire would make things incredibly difficult for HMS Hood. As for the Germans, the Bismarck spotted the ships at 5.45 a.m. The British were steaming head-on toward the Germans, and this allowed Bismarck and Prince Eugen to fire full broadsides while Hood and Prince of Wales could only use their forward guns. Several minutes into the battle, the British turned 20 degrees to port, using their rear guns turrets now on the German battleships. Bismarck and Prince Eugen focused in on HMS Hood, raining down shells upon her. Once Bismarck locked onto HMS Hood's range, they began shooting off salvos in rapid succession from Bismarck's 38-centimeter guns. The 15-centimeter secondary guns were turned onto Prince of Wales, with the British ships turning 20 degrees once more to be parallel with Bismarck and Prince Eugen, the four ships exchanging shots. Prince Eugen moved their focus to Prince of Wales to keep both enemy ships at bay. Within a few minutes, Prince of Wales was hit by a pair of hits from Prince Eugen and a small fire started. At 6 a.m. during this first 20-degree turn to use her rear turrets, HMS Hood was struck again by at least one but possibly more shells on her boat deck from Bismarck's 5th salvo. A shell from the 5th salvo appeared to have struck the spotting top littering the boat deck with body parts and debris as men were killed instantly. After this, a huge fireball of flames burst from the hood near the main mast with a huge magazine explosion following 
that would obliterate the aft section of HMS Hood. This battle had just begun, and it was almost the end for HMS Hood. This explosion snapped HMS Hood in half like the Titanic, and she sank in three minutes, her bow almost vertical in the water before she foundered. She lasted eight minutes into this battle. Only three men survived the sinking of the 1,418 men on board. These three men were midshipman William John Dundas, ordinary singleman Ted Briggs, and able seaman Robert Tilburn. These three men would be saved two hours after the battle by the destroyer HMS Electra. We still have another British ship in this fight, the HMS Prince of Wales, so we will be continuing the story through her eyes. While HMS Hood was sinking, Prince Eugen was behind the Bismarck, using her hydrophone and radar to continue to track HMS Suffolk and HMS Norfolk, which were only 10 to 12 nautical miles to the east, which is 19 to 22 kilometers and 12 to 14 miles. After sinking HMS Hood, Bismarck turned to sink her teeth into Prince of Wales. Prince of Wales managed to score a shell on Bismarck, though it was tit for tat. The Bismarck landed a shell from her first salvo. One of these shells actually hit the bridge of Prince of Wales, but it didn't detonate. Instead, it zipped out the other side, but it still managed to kill everyone in the command center except Captain John Leach and one other officer. The battle continued, the Germans raining hell down on the Prince of Wales, seriously damaging her. Not only this, but Prince of Wales was a recently commissioned ship and her new guns jammed only have civilian technicians aboard to attempt to fix the problem. Despite this, the British ship still managed to land three hits on the Bismarck during the skirmish, one hitting her foxhill above the waterline through low enough to allow water from crashing waves into the hull, the second hitting below the armored belt and exploding on contact with the torpedo bulkhead. This completely flooded a turbo generator room and partially flooded the boiler room next door. The last shell passed through one of the ship's boats and then passed through a plane catapult, but it didn't detonate. Seeing no way to win with only 5 of her 10 14-inch or 356mm guns still active, Captain Leach ordered the heavily damaged Prince of Wales to retreat at 6.13am. She turned 160 degrees and laid a smokescreen, retreating in a puff of smoke like Batman would. With the range widening, the Germans ceased fire. Though Captain Lindemann of the Bismarck desperately wanted to chase down the Prince of Wales, Admiral Lutjens refused, obeying operational orders to avoid engagement if possible. Instead, Bismarck and Prince Eugen were ordered out to the North Atlantic. During this skirmish, the Bismarck had fired 93 armor-piercing shells and been hit with three from Prince of Wales. The Foxhill allowed roughly 1,000 to 2,000 tons, or 980 to 1,970 long tons, of water to flood the ship, and this would contaminate the fuel oil stored in the bow. Despite this, there was no reduction in speed to let damage control teams patch the hull, and because of this, it continued to widen and let in more and more water. The second shell did cause additional flooding, but not as badly, but shell splinters from the second shell damaged a steam line in the turbo generator room. This sounds serious, but it wasn't really, since Bismarck was well equipped with other generator reserves. The flooding from both of these shell hits caused a 9-degree list to port and a loss of trim in the bow by 3 degrees. Prince of Wales continued to retreat, having trudged through the wreckage of HMS Hood and escaping from the Germans. She sustained heavy damage, including damage below the waterline from a shell that thankfully did not explode. It would be discovered later, but for now, Prince of Wales radioed HMS Norfolk, explaining that HMS Hood had been sunk. 
The British were already fired up about the Bismarck sinking many Allied ships, but now it was at a fever pitch. Prince of Wales sailed on, regrouping with HMS Suffolk 15 to 17 miles or 24 to 27 kilometers behind the Bismarck. They weren't going to give up on sinking the Bismarck. This was only the beginning for Prince of Wales, Norfolk, and Suffolk. After the heated battle, as Prince of Wales escaped, Admiral Lutyens reported in, stating, quote, Battle cruiser, probably Hood, sunk. Another battleship, King George V, or Renown, turned away damaged. Two heavy cruisers maintained contact. Little did they know it was actually the Prince of Wales, and she wasn't giving up without a fight. At 8.01 a.m., after sending out a damage report and his attentions to OKM, the Prince Eugen was detached and was to head for Saint-Nazaire, France, for repairs. This left the Bismarck to fend for herself, and she was leaking oil. Admiral Donitz offered the assistance of every U-boat in the Atlantic Ocean to protect the Bismarck, which was now a wounded animal leaking her blood into the water, and every British vessel was a hungry shark tracking the scent. U-boats were scattered about her extrapolated route, and Bismarck headed toward a French port for much-needed repairs, but she'd never make it, limping into a death trap. Prime Minister Winston Churchill ordered all of his warships in the area to pursue and sink the Prince Eugen and the Bismarck. Ships were converging from all over the North Atlantic to hunt the Bismarck, including Admiral Sir John Tovey's home fleet. In total, there would be 42 total ships, 21 destroyers, 2 aircraft carriers, 13 cruisers, and 6 battleships and battle cruisers. And the Prince of Wales had 9 out of her 10 guns operational again by 5pm, thus permitting her to be the frontrunner of Wake Walker's formation to attack Bismarck should the opportunity present itself. The weather worsened to the point Prince Eugen couldn't be dispatched, and so she stuck around for the moment. Wake Walker's cruisers had consistently maintained radar contact and were closing in on the Germans, pursuing the two battleships like cheetahs on gazelles. Prince Eugen would be dispatched a couple hours later at 6.14 p.m., leaving the Bismarck alone as she turned to face the formation, forcing HMS Suffolk to turn away at high speed because of the sudden maneuver. Prince of Wales opened fire, firing 12 salvos at Bismarck, and Bismarck fired nine back, though none hit. This skirmish distracted the British long enough for Prince Eugen to slip away. Despite the engagement, Bismarck resumed her heading with the three ships taking up station on Bismarck's port side. Bismarck had been heavily damaged and needed to slow down, but she could still reach 27 to 28 knots, and this was the maximum speed of King George V in Toby's home fleet. If the British couldn't slow the Bismarck down, then they wouldn't be able to stop her from making it to France. Just before 4 p.m. on May 25th, Tovey would dispatch HMS Victorious, an aircraft carrier, alongside four light cruiser in order to meet up the Bismarck and launch torpedo bombers, something Bismarck couldn't outrun. Later, at 10 p.m., HMS Victorious launched her planes and began the attack, but it was a mess. The aviators were not experienced and damn near struck HMS Norfolk and the United States Coast Guard cutter Modoc instead. And because of this confusion, the anti-aircraft gunners on board Bismarck got their chance. Bismarck would fire both her first and second batteries at maximum depression, and this created giant splashes in the water in the path of the torpedo bombers, but none of the aircraft were shot down. 
Bismarck was able to avoid seven torpedoes, but the eighth landed, striking the Bismarck amidships on the main armament belt. And this threw one man into a bulkhead, killing him instantly and injuring five others nearby. This explosion also caused minor damage to the electrical equipment, but the ship did suffer more serious damage as well. While making rapid, sharp turns to avoid torpedoes, her collision mats were loosened and this vastly increased the flooding and forced the crew to abandon the port side boiler room number two. This meant another boiler was lost as well as fuel, and her trim dipped even lower, and so the Bismarck slowed down to 16 knots. Divers were able to repair the collision mats, and this meant she could increase her speed back up to 20 knots. But would it be enough? Just after the swordfish torpedo bombers left the scene, Prince of Wales swooped in once more, and her and the Bismarck engaged in artillery fire. Neither of them accomplished anything. By the morning of May 25th, Bismarck slowed to 12 knots after all of the danger had subsided for now, and divers pumped fuel from the forward compartments to the rear tanks, and this saved a few hundred tons of fuel. We're now going to enter open waters, where the danger against Bismarck was on all sides, though for now she'd gotten away and was making a beeline for France. The British were desperate at this point to find the Bismarck and sink her for good, with many of their own ships running low on fuel. This felt like their last shot. They had to do it, and it had to be this run. They continued going in the wrong direction, too. Wakewalker's ships went southwest, Victorious and her cruisers headed west, and Toby's home fleet pushed into the mid-Atlantic. Force H was at least a day away, leading up from Gibraltar, so they weren't able to help just yet. The Bismarck was unaware they'd broken free from the British, and so they sent out long radio messages to Naval Group West in Paris. The British intercepted these messages and determined bearings from it. Unfortunately, they weren't plotted correctly on King George V, and so Toby and his ships pushed into the Iceland Faroe Gap, thinking the Bismarck was heading straight to Germany, and this put them on the wrong course for seven hours. Even after they figured it out, the gap had widened between the British and the Bismarck. Though the British alongside codebreakers like Jane Fawcett were able to decrypt some of the German signals and the French resistance was able to confirm that the Luftwaffe were relocating to France, the British were still behind. If Bismarck was to continue at her current speed, she was fast enough and close enough to France to make it to the safety of cover from the Luftwaffe and U-boats in less than a day. She'd been sighted earlier on May 26th at 10.30 a.m. by a Catalina piloted by Ensign Leonard B. Smith of the U.S. Navy, and he located the ship roughly 690 nautical miles, which is 1,280 kilometers or 790 miles northwest of Brest. Most of the British weren't close enough to stop the Bismarck. Well, the British had one shot, HMS Ark Royal with Force H from Gibraltar. Every other British ship was either too far away or needed to stop and refuel, including Prince of Wales. Swordfish, launched from Ark Royal, were already looking for Bismarck when the Americans located her, and several of the torpedo bombers found the Bismarck themselves, some 60 nautical miles away from the Bismarck, which is 110 kilometers or 69 miles. Admiral James Somerville on the Ark Royal seized his chance, detaching the cruiser HMS Sheffield to follow Bismarck but the aviators were not made aware of this. As a result, the swordfish accidentally attacked the Sheffield, but luckily the magnetic detonators failed and Sheffield was not harmed. The British could not continue making mistakes like this. As soon as they landed back on the Ark Royal, the aviators loaded torpedoes with contact detonators instead, and they launched a second attack compromised of 15 aircraft at 7.10 p.m. 
40 minutes later at 7.50 p.m., Ark Royal and HMS Renown passed the position of U-556 and it would have shot at the ships, having a perfect shot lined up, had it not already used all of its torpedoes in previous attacks. The Swordfish made contact at 8 p.m. with Sheffield, and this pointed them in the direction of the Bismarck. However, they couldn't find Bismarck and at 8.30 p.m. asked Sheffield once more for directions. They did find her, and finally at 8.47 p.m., the Swordfish began to descend through the clouds onto the Bismarck. Bismarck fired on the aircraft as they approached, making the enormous splash columns for the planes to avoid. The Swordfish were unfazed, launched their torpedoes, and the Bismarck turned violently as her anti-aircraft guns rained held down upon the Swordfish. It was working, though. One torpedo hit the Bismarck on the port side amidships, right below the bottom edge of the main armor belt. The explosion was contained for the most part by the underwater protection system and the belt armor, but Bismarck did sustain structural damage and some minor flooding. A second torpedo struck the Bismarck, this time in her stern on the port side, near the port side rudder shaft. The coupling on the port rudder assembly was instantly damaged horrifically, and it jammed the rudder in a 12 degree turn to port. This would make the ship incapable of maneuvering by 9.15pm, even though they'd managed to at least repair the starboard side rudder. The Bismarck was trapped in a giant circle as she desperately tried to escape. Bismarck, try as she might, was not able to shake Tovey's forces. The battleships King George V and Rodney were still available, alongside the cruisers Dorsetshire and Norfolk. At this point, the Bismarck and her crew knew their fate, and Admiral Lutchen signaled the headquarters at 9.40 p.m. on May 26th, stating, quote, Ship unmaneuverable. We will fight to the last shell. Long live the Fuhrer. Of course, the crew became incredibly depressed, knowing they would most likely die a horrible death. Swordfish descended upon Bismarck once more, and fleetingly, Bismarck fired her main battery at the nearby HMS Sheffield, killing three men and wounding two others. Four more salvos would be fired off, only to hit nothing. Sheffield retreated under a smoke screen, backing up as the swordfish did their jobs. Captain Philip Vian's group of five destroyers were ordered to stay with the Bismarck, maintaining contact with her overnight. They did come across Bismarck at 10.38 p.m., and quickly Bismarck launched her main battery to defend herself. They fought throughout the night and continued as the sun rose into the sky, and after dawn on May 27th, King George V pushed into attack, with Rodney following closely on the port side. The ships would engage the Bismarck at 8.43 a.m., and the Bismarck returned fire at 8.50 a.m. After this, Bismarck's ability to aim her guns rapidly deteriorated since the ship could not steer and moved erratically in the heavy swells. At 9.02 a.m., HMS Rodney launched a shell that struck Bismarck's forward superstructure, killing hundreds of men and almost destroying the two forward turrets. According to some survivors, this shell killed all of the bridge staff, including Captain Lindemann and Admiral Lutchens. The main fire control director was also hit, and this probably killed Schneider, the man coordinating Bismarck's attacks. This was the beginning of the end. By 9.31 a.m., all of the four main battery turrets were disabled. One of the shells launched from the Bismarck did hit Rodney's bow and damage the starboard torpedo tube, but this was the closest Bismarck got to a direct hit on any of her enemies in this fight. Being the bridge staff were all dead, no one responded to Fregatin Capitan Hans Ols, and so he took command of the ship. Because of the damage and devastation around them, he decided around 9.30am they were going to scuttle the ship to keep the British from boarding her and to give the German crew a chance to escape. 
Bismarck was already sinking slowly from the increasing list, allowing more and more water to enter, but the sinking was very slow. Around the time he decided to scuttle her, Oles ordered the men below decks to abandon ship and for the engine room crew to open the watertight doors and prepare scuttling charges. By 10.10 a.m., the engine room crew had done as they were asked and abandoned their stations. While this was going on, Oles rushed about the ship like a chicken with his head cut off, ordering men to abandon ship. At about 10 a.m., a shell from King George V hit the upper citadel belt and exploded in the ship's after canteen, and this killed Oles on the gun deck with roughly 100 other men. Toby's ships closed in on the Bismarck, which was now in shambles and aflame, slowly settling in the stern with a 20-degree list to port. Tovey would not let up unless the Germans struck their ensigns, which is to lower a flag that signifies surrender or that is became clear the crew was abandoning ship. In this amount of time, 2,800 more shells would be shot at the Bismarck on top of the 700 main battery shells that had already been fired. Despite hitting Bismarck with over 400 hits, they couldn't sink her by gunfire alone. That does go to show how tough that ship really was. They fired at point-blank range, killing hundreds of men and destroying the superstructure and parts of the hull that were above the waterline. After this, Rodney fired two torpedoes from her port side and allegedly one hit. If this is true, this is the only instance in history of a battleship successfully torpedoing another battleship. The scuttling charges detonated around 10.20 a.m., and by 10.35 a.m., Bismarck listed heavily to port, slowly capsizing and sinking by her stern. Bismarck disappeared under the waves by 10.40 a.m., with Dorsetshire having fired two more torpedoes and hitting her for good measure just before she went under. The British ships were dangerously low on fuel and needed to fall back. 400 men from the Bismarck were in the water, and ropes were lowered from Dorsetshire and the destroyer HMS Maury. At 11.40 a.m., the Dorsetshire spotted what they thought was a U-boat and left the scene, with Dorsetshire having managed to rescue 85 men and the Maury having rescued 25. U-74 was indeed watching from a distance as Bismarck blew up and sank, but she didn't go near the survivors. Tovey's ships rescued three men around 7.30 p.m., and the following day, a German trawler called Sachsenwalk rescued two more men who were in the raft around 10.45 p.m. Of the crew of over 2,200 men, only 114 survived the sinking of the Bismarck, and she would not be discovered until Robert Ballard found her on June 8, 1989. In total, the victim count between the two ships was over 3,500 men between every ship involved in the Battle of the Denmark Strait. Again, war is ugly and affects both sides of the conflict, so rest in peace to every victim. May we never forget this battle and all that we have learned from World War II as a whole. That is the story of the Bismarck and HMS Hood, a harrowing war story that will always be regarded as one of the most well-known heated battles on the sea. Also, thank you everyone on Shipwreck Sunday for welcoming me back and allowing me to tell HMS Hood's side of the story. It was so much fun and we'll have to do more episodes together. Thanks so much Shipwreckers. If you like this video, make sure to check out the video on USS Indianapolis, another impressive battleship. Thanks so much to our lovely patrons for subscribing and supporting the channel and myself as a creator. You guys are awesome and it really does help us out. If you'd like to support this channel and future episodes, go to patreon.com slash shipwreck Sunday to join. Thank you for tuning into Shipwreck Sunday. If you liked this episode and are listening on YouTube, please give us a like, leave us a comment, and subscribe to our channel. 
If you liked this episode and are listening on Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, please subscribe for more content and leave us a five-star review as it does help us reach more listeners like you. If you have any ships you'd like us to cover, please leave us a comment and you might hear your favorite ship here on the podcast. Check out our community tab for updates and to interact with us. And we are also on Facebook and Instagram. Tune in next Sunday for the story of SS Oregon, a Cunard liner that sank while approaching New York Harbor, resulting in a massive financial loss. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.